We're continuing in Exodus tonight, and while I was reading the chapters around um, Exodus 34, which is uh, part of where we'll be, I was just really struck with what happens just before with the golden calf and the relational rupture there with God and his people. Uh, If we try to enter the narrative with fresh eyes, it made me think of how this would feel like such an unimaginable plot twist. kind of like when being really enthralled in a TV show. It makes me think of uh, before Netflix, when you had to wait a whole week or an entire summer to see a next episode, and you didn't know what was going to happen. There might have been some sort of great, you know, cliffhanger, something that seemed to change everything, and it just didn't seem possible that somehow the story could be redeemed, somehow that trajectory that we saw going could be woven back together. I think in a lot of ways, this is where we are on the other side of the golden calf. Um, The people of Israel have seemingly ruined everything. God has delivered them, brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. Uh, He's given them good instruction on how to live. There's this beautiful covenant ceremony happening on the mountain. And the people get impatient and ask Aaron to make gods to go before them despite the fact that they've just pledged three times that they will do all that God has instructed. They quickly abandon this, and instead of knowing God and living in the freedom that he's brought them to, they give themselves over to another kind of bondage, uh, not understanding who God is, not being formed by knowing who God is. And throughout Exodus, over and over, uh, God says that Israel will know who he is. Um, There's this theme interwoven into relationship between God and his people. And it's clear with what just happened with the golden calf that Israel just doesn't get it yet. Um, Without knowing what happens next in the story, I think it would seem like there's no hope. Moses has smashed the tablets when he comes down from the mountain. God says that he will not go with the people anymore. He's going to send a messenger. And Moses is pleading with God. While Israel doesn't seem to get it yet, it seems like Moses does. Um, He seems to know that their only hope is God's mercy, God's grace. And this is really what he calls upon and seeks out as he's pleading with the Lord. And and this is where we're picking up tonight. We're going to start in Exodus 33. Um, It's a decent chunk of text, so bear with me. And I encourage you to notice how many times the word to know um, comes up in this conversation between Moses and the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, see, you have been saying to me, bring this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. But you said, I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you, that I may continue to find favor in your sight and see that this people, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not take us up from here. For how will it be known then that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we will be distinguished, I and your people, 
from all the people who are on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do this thing also that you have requested, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before your face, and I will proclaim the Lord by name before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he added, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place by me. You will station yourself on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. This interaction here is a really significant contrast from Moses with God when they first interacted in Exodus 3. Um, Then Moses hid his face from God. And the Hebrew word for face is the same word that we translate as presence. Um, It's also the same word as before, as in God went before them. And there's a theme throughout the book with this word, God's presence to the people, his face upon them, his going before them are all integral uh, to Israel's relationship with God. And now we see Moses no longer hiding his face from God, but instead seeking out God's face, wanting to know him more, not just to go with the people of Israel, um, but wanting to know his ways. And I love that in this tense moment, Moses isn't just praying, you know, God, please do this, or if you do this for me, if you do this for us, I promise I'll do this. Uh, It's not a transactional prayer. There's something so deeply relational about it. It seems like Moses really understands that this whole thing depends on who God is. He's hungry to know God more, to know his ways, to see his glory, and God does respond. He says that he will proclaim his name before him. Um, And I don't know about you, but for me initially that kind of feels like, oh, is that responding to what Moses is asking, you know, proclaiming his name? Uh, And a lot of that has to do with the meaning of names um, biblically and in ancient times. Uh, And the name of Exodus in Hebrew is actually known as the book of names. Um, Names are really significant. It's Significant that no Pharaoh is named at all in this book, even though he's the king of Egypt. Uh, But instead, he stands in contrast with God, who says his name will be known um, by what he's doing. We see this in the plagues. We see this as God provides in the wilderness. Um, We see this as God is bringing people into covenant relationship with him. And so this entire book is pointing us to God's name, to who he is, that he's the one true God, that he's creator, that he's king, he's deliverer, Um, he saves, he provides, and he wants to dwell with his people. So here in Exodus 34, what we see is like a pinnacle of sorts in this book of names, as God will pass by Moses and proclaim his name. And spending time with this passage, uh, preparing for tonight, I noticed a tension in me that surprised me a bit. Um, I've been so excited and really nerding out over 
getting to preach on this passage, uh, wanting to just, you know, chew on and savor the richness of the Hebrew, seeing the beauty of the story just melt over us, and um, really knowing this is one of the most beautiful and powerful passages of God revealing who he is. At the same time, when I was sitting with these verses, um, I started to notice that part of me felt a bit stuck. Um, I started to notice almost like a hesitancy or even a distance uh, in my heart. And in one sense, I I knew with my head, God is so gloriously all these things that we're gonna be reading in a moment together. At the same time, There was something in me that honestly ached a bit and almost even felt a bit numb when sitting with this passage. And for me, I started to realize uh, this was telling me that there were some wounds that were not as healed as I thought they were. Um, And it became pretty clear that those wounds weren't grounded in just one thing or one story, one event. They were from spaces that shared a common denominator of feeling like God was distant. And so all these things that we know to be true of God, feeling like, okay, his mercy, his grace, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, spaces where I didn't feel that or I didn't feel like I knew that. Um, And so sitting with these verses initially felt like almost rubbing on a wound with that, kind of confronting something that didn't feel very pleasant. And... I couldn't really tell Doug, well, I'm not going to come tonight, and so I kept sitting with these verses and kept coming back to them, and um, what initially felt painful, I I really started to see God tend to those spaces and gently proclaim his name into those spaces, and there was a real sweetness about this because uh, I'd written a paper on this passage back in seminary, and a similar thing happened. Uh, I was deep in the Hebrew and footnotes and syntax and grammar, and as I was writing this paper, I would just find myself crying at different times, just so moved by God's glorious presence that we get to encounter, that we get to see. And so that started to make me curious about what God might want to do in this space tonight. Um, I know that all of us walk in here with different things going on in our lives, right? Coming in from different spaces. And it just made me curious of what might he want to enter into? Where might he want to proclaim his name in our lives? uh, In places that might need to be reminded or might need to be refreshed with who God is. So with that in mind, um, we're going to continue in Exodus 34, and I just encourage you to notice as we read these verses that can be well known, um, is there any part of you that feels excited or that feels distant or that just feels anything or nothing in response to them? Um, God gives Moses instructions uh, about this whole dramatic scenario he sets up. He says he's going to put him in the cleft of a rock. He tells him to carve two new stone tablets like the first ones that Moses had smashed. He tells him that he needs to go up the mountain alone, that not even sheep or cattle are to graze in front of the mountain. And we'll continue in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud 
and stood with him there and called out the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed before him and called out, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, patient in regard to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, preserving loyal love and faithfulness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he by no means leaves iniquity, transgression, and sin unpunished, responding appropriately to the iniquity of fathers on children and children's children to the fourth, third and fourth generation. So first, God starts with proclaiming that he is merciful and gracious. Um, I love this first word. Uh, we often translate it maybe as merciful or compassionate. Um, it has to do with compassion, mercy, and love. And its root noun actually means womb. And so the tender care of mercy or compassion here can be thought of as embodied in the tender care of maternal care. In uh, so many statements about who God is with this word, uh, we find gracious right next to it, that he's merciful and gracious or compassionate and gracious. And this word also has a, a compassionate parental nuance to it. Um, there's such a posture of God's care for us, knowing our state, knowing how to engage with us. And the next words, um, where God says that he is slow or patient to anger, um, what's really fun is in the Hebrew, the most literal reading is that he is long as to the nostrils, uh, which doesn't really mean much to us today. <laughs> uh, but in Hebrew, um, nose can also mean anger. And so to say that he is long as to the nostrils, it, it paints this picture for us of his patience. Uh, it's kind of like the opposite of saying that someone has a short fuse. And I think this is you know, really significant on the other side of the golden calf. It puts into perspective um, the magnitude of what happened and that God did get angry. Uh, and we know in this part of the narrative that God will still go with them. Um, his anger wasn't the only word or the final word in response. Next, God says that he is abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. And these words are translated as different things, sometimes loving kindness and truth or steadfast love and fidelity. Uh, the first of these is just bursting uh, with meaning and it has these rich relational dimensions to it. And it's thought of as God's covenant love and sometimes as the opposite of his anger. And so to put this with him being reliable, faithful to us, it gives us this picture of him just being unwavering in his character, in his posture toward us. God maintains this loyal love for thousands and forgives or carries iniquity, transgression, and sin. And when we talk about relationship with God, you know, the issue of our sin is often a core part of that, right? We, we need forgiveness for our sin, for relationship to work. There's this problem that God has to bridge that he needs to bring salvation. And I didn't know this until I was studying biblical languages that words like transgression and iniquity aren't uh, just translations or variations of one word for sin. Um, and so what's painted here is this really rich picture actually of 
the human problem uh, that's in need of that forgiveness that God provides. Um, The word sin is where we often get the idea of missing the mark, if you've heard that as a definition of sin. And um, iniquity has to do with wrongdoing, religiously or um, ethically. Transgression has to do with wrongdoing as well, just more holistically. And so we get this really rich picture that shows us the depth of God's not limited in forgiving or caring, bearing these things um, on our behalf. And right after God says that he forgives, he also says that he doesn't leave things unpunished. He says that he responds accordingly to the iniquity of fathers to the third and fourth generation. And this line can stump us and almost feel like it doesn't really fit with what we've just heard. Uh, It definitely doesn't feel good, like other verses can feel good to read. And as we seek to make sense of this verse along others, I think it's helpful to note that the verb here, um, here it's translated as respond accordingly. It has to do with really looking at a person's circumstance and responding to that either compassionately or with punishment. Um, It's often translated as to visit. Uh, We see this uh, actually right after the golden calf when God says he's not gonna go with the people anymore and that he'll visit their sin. We also see it earlier in Exodus, uh, in chapters three and four, when God says that he's observed or visited them in their oppression in Egypt, and that he will respond to their affliction. So God watches closely and responds accordingly to circumstances in a way that's congruent with who he is. And today we know that Christ has carried the full weight of our sin, our iniquity, our transgression, and and that was the ultimate example of God seeing our circumstance, our great need for compassion, and him responding in the fullness of his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his long nostrils. So God uses all these words to describe himself to Moses after Moses has said, show me your glory, after Moses has said that he wants to know God's ways. And we see Moses' response in verse eight. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses knows that the only hope, the only way for this story to change is by God's mercy, his grace upon them. He knows the stiff-necked nature of the people can only be remedied by God's nature, uh, the fullest fullness of who God is, God's name. And Moses stays on the mountain a, a little bit after this, There's almost like a miniature law or covenant passage that happens, uh, similar to the verses that we saw before the golden calf. So God goes over all these things again with Moses. And then he comes back down the mountain to the people and something is different. We read in verse 29. Now when Moses came down from from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, when he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with them. 
When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to approach him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and Moses spoke to them. After this, all the Israelites approached, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he would put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. Then he would come out and tell the Israelites what he had been commanded. When the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. So we get this really unique picture of Moses veiling and unveiling his face before he goes to God and comes out to the people. And if you've taken an art history class, um, you might be familiar with artwork that has light shooting out of Moses' face or even horns like Michelangelo's uh, sculpture of Moses. And people debate how to best translate what's going on here. Um, old Greek and Latin translations understood this as him sprouting horns. Um, there's certainly something that could be said with the significance that could hold with an ancient Near Eastern understanding of horns and strength and deity and the golden calf that just happened. Um, most people understand this as rays of light kind of figuratively shooting out, as you can see, is so wonderfully <laughs> depicted in some of that artwork. Um, and that gives us our more well-known translations of radiating or shining. And while there's some mystery in this translation, what we do know for certain is that Moses is markedly changed by his encounter with God to a point where the people are scared and have him put a veil over his face. There's a way that he's now reflecting God's glory, almost like an imprint of God's glory. Moses' face, his presence, is bringing with him something of God's presence to the people. Moses was just pleading with God over and over again, asking for God's face, God's presence to still go with them. And now one way that God's presence will go with them is through the face of Moses. And this veil on Moses' face reminds us of the veil in the tabernacle that designates the most holy place. It sets a clear marker for God's presence, God's dwelling in the midst of the people. And today we live on the other side of the veil ultimately being torn. Uh, you can see a couple verses from the gospels that reference the veil in the temple being torn after Christ's death. And to live after the veil has been torn is to live when the fullness of God's goodness and glory doesn't need to be rationed or restricted. Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, came to usher in a new exodus from the ultimate problem that we can't fix on our own, our stiff necks. Uh, it was true of Israel back in the Exodus narrative, and it's true of us today. And when I think back to what I shared earlier about spaces of pain where I felt as though God and his goodness had been distant, this imagery of a veil on Moses' face and stiff necks makes me think about how I can almost set up my own 
protective barrier around raw spots, um, like a veil or a partition for myself to try to keep wounds from being exposed to more hurt. And in this very moment, it's you know, easy for me to know and say that of course God's presence would be healing to a wound or a wounded space. But in the thick of pain or fear or heartache, I will certainly try to wrap up and partition off my wounds to try to keep them safe myself. Not wanting anyone to come near, and if I'm completely honest, that includes God, if I feel like he's been distant. I see God entering into those spaces as his compassionate mercy and grace in action, uh, the presence of his kind and loyal love and faithfulness, and he's been reminding me that no matter how stubborn or stiff-necked I can be in trying to fend for myself as though he's distant, uh, as we sang last week, uh, his mercy is more. And. I wonder if anyone else can relate to this sense of having almost like a veiled or partitioned off space in the heart or soul. Wounds or raw spots that we try to veil, that we try to shield, trying to keep them safe. And I wonder what it would be like to ask God to tenderly proclaim his name into those spaces, to help us know, to really deeply know who he is, his unveiled mercy, unveiled grace. To ask him to almost melt away or pierce through whatever might be in the way, knowing that we don't have a Moses who needs to go between us and God, putting a veil on to shield us. Uh, We live after that temple veil has been torn, after Christ has made a way for our stiff necks to not get in the way of the truest and deepest healing that we need. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for who you are. And I do ask that you would proclaim your name into spaces where we need reminders of who you are not just as a platitude or what we should believe, but a real and living knowing of who you are. Amen.